Hey there, my name's Mark McCartney and welcome to the What Is A Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question, not in the hopes of providing a universal answer, but to provide you with content that prompts your own inquiry into this question. While I'm also trying to share with you what I perceive to be more genuine expressions of the human experience. On the 16th episode of the What Is A Good Life podcast, I'm joined by Diane Button, who is the author of the best-selling book, Dear Death, Finding Meaning in Life, Peace in Death, and Joy in an Ordinary Day. She holds a master's in counseling psychology, is a practicing end-of-life doula, and is a lead instructor at the University of Vermont's end-of-life doula certificate program. In this episode, Diane shares the four pillars of a meaningful life that she discovered through interviewing people over the age of 75 who were highly content with how they live their lives. We discuss what she's learned about relationships, forgiveness, self-acceptance, and self-reflection through working with people at the end of their lives. While the conversation further reinforces for me the significance of regularly contemplating life through the lens of death in building my own good life, as it is filled with heartfelt insights, wisdom, and practical tools for leading a life of greater reflection, connection, less regret, and for finding meaning. I enjoyed this conversation immensely. Diane is a huge source of wisdom, and I'm sure you're going to take a lot from this conversation too. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like, share, and subscribe, as I greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 16th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Diane, thank you so much for joining me on the What is a Good Life podcast today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I've really enjoyed our correspondence even before this this podcast. So I'm very, very grateful to have you here today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much, Diane. And so, Diane, as I tend to kick off these conversations with the question of, is there a question that you're trying to answer as you move through life? Hmm. That's such a great question. And it's so interesting being kind of probably well past halfway through my life, because over the years, I, I would have answered this question so differently over the years. And I realized like perhaps in my 20s, when I was looking forward, I might have I might have looked more through an existential type of a lens, like what is the meaning of life? Like the big questions, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why are you here? You know, how are we connected to each other and all other beings? And I kind of would have gone down that path. And then I think as I aged, and got a little bit older, I started looking through a more sort of spiritual lens, kind of wondering what happens to us when we die, or what is this life here to teach me? But, you know, now I've kind of come to learn that, you know, these questions are unanswerable, and they're they're unanswerable for a reason. You know, we weren't born with an instruction manual. And so I think that, that we spend a lot of time pondering those things that we can't really answer. And as I've aged, I thought, well, what can I answer? You know? So I think I've settled in a bit and realized that the, the questions that I can answer are about being here now, you know, a more realistic sort of more tangible, what can I see? What can I understand? And, you know, because of my profession and working with the dying so intimately, I realize that, you know, some people have a super calm and peaceful death and other people have a lot more fear and they seem distressed. And so, you know, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand the difference between like the way people die and it's definitely impacted my life. So to answer the question, um, I think that I really want to live my everyday life, my simple, ordinary, everyday life as fully as possible. So my question is, it's part of the tagline to my book too, like how can I live 
a life that is filled with meaning and joy and certainly ups and downs that I'm willing to ride like we all do. How can I do that and live in peace and also be ready, always ready to die in peace, emotional and spiritual peace? Well, that's a that's a beautiful answer. The sense of willing to die in peace, could you kind of even elaborate because elaborate on that just from the point of view of how do you how did you even identify that as something that's possible? How do you shift through life to you know, because so many people seem to be clinging on and resisting the idea of death. How do you kind of how have you developed a sense of almost it, it sounds like acceptance? It is acceptance. Um, I think circumstances and life experiences present things to you, right? And you learn lessons. I'll, I'll just tell one little story. There are several stories, I think, that led me to an understanding that I want to be as peaceful as I can in my life to prepare for the end of my life. But I think a big turning point for me was the death of my grandfather, because yeah. when he died, he, well, first of all, he was a, a surgeon and he worked with burn victims mostly. And so he witnessed some horrific pain and suffering and he was always very peaceful and always very calm. And, and I knew that he dealt with a lot of grief and um, he was dying. And the day that he died, he had a huge smile on his face when he took his last breath. And it was the biggest smile I'd ever seen on his face. And it was one of those kind of spiritual moments where the church bells rang and the breeze was blowing and it was just so beautiful. And I realized I didn't ask my grandfather enough questions. Like I didn't really get to the core of who he was as a man who could work with such pain and suffering yet live with such peace and joy. And so I kind of set out on my life's path to figure out that question and that thought, you know, how can I do that for myself? And just to expand on the peace part, a little of it, you know, I can't say that I'm going to die in peace without pain and suffering. I don't know how I'm going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. And I don't know if I'm going to be in pain. So it's not the physical peace that I'm talking about. It's the inner peace, the spiritual peace, the emotional peace. It's being prepared any day to die, knowing that I've followed my heart and I've taken care of what I feel personally I need to take care of in order to have a complete life at all times. Out of interest, when you describe this smile on your grandfather's face as the, the biggest smile that you've seen, if you take yourself back even to the, your memory of that moment, like what do you think you experienced while observing that? I experienced someone who lived in peace and died in peace. And that's yeah. that was just, it consumed the room and it was so beautiful. And I felt him leave as I do most often when I'm with someone when they die. And it all felt so calm and so beautiful and so right and uncomplicated. And like looking back on it now, I could explain it from a different vantage point because I've spent so many years trying to explore what that smile was. But at the time, it was just leaving me with a big curiosity, yeah. you know? What a beautiful gift. Yeah. You, you know, to, to be left with from a moment where you felt, well, not only where you got to observe peace in, a, in, a, in an environment where I think 
typically our society would view it as as not a peaceful place and then and then also to be left with a with a lifelong curiosity that sounds like a, a beautiful gift in in terms then of just in that curiosity then how how did you first start to to move into then living this more like you know so from this formative experience then moving through life and and i i know from just knowing your background that you moved into different things before as well uh focusing more on the work you're doing now what was what kind of led you more formally into the work shall we say yeah well i think i started exploring life and death and meaning and purpose and i started you know going to seminars and going to workshops and reading books and I went back and got my master's in counseling and it was really all about understanding the meaning of life and how to live fully, live a life that is without regret as much as possible and as peaceful as possible. So I kind of grew in my education and I started working with hospice, volunteering at hospice. And I just got to experience so many people at the end of life where It's so true. I mean, when you look in the eyes of a dying person, you see the truth because there's no time to waste on small talk. There's no time to not be real. And so it's always so meaningful. I've never, ever had a conversation with a dying person that I didn't walk away feeling like I've grown and become a better person because of it ever. So those conversations really sparked me. And then over time, I started writing about the end of life experiences and doing some blogging and such. And I started kind of keeping track of some of the stories. And I took my master's thesis, which kind of was condensed down into these pillars of a meaningful life. And I work with my clients through these four pillars of meaning to help them all get to a place where they can feel peace at the end of life. So I've kind of taken my education and all the studies that I did and my experience with the dying and kind of met them together on the path now so that when I do companion the dying as a death doula, I have more tools just from the experience of the years, starting with my grandfather's smile on his face and all the research I've done and and the work that I've been so privileged to experience sitting at the bedside of the dying. There's just, I, I there's a couple of things I do want to go back to, but just for the people that are, are listening um, at this point, uh, could you just ex- expand upon the the four pillars that you've identified? Sure. So what I did was I interviewed people over seventy five years old who have could say, "Oh, my life has been meaningful. I could die tomorrow and I would be perfectly content." And I'd want to talk to those people. And I interviewed them and I still interview them on airplanes or wherever I can. It's just so amazing to have these conversations. And I did what was called a phenomenological study. So that means I would interview them and I would pull out the common threads. Like what, what are they all saying? What are they all feeling? You know, what do they all have in common? And I, I found that there's these four pillars and I'll tell you what they are. The first one is a spiritual practice or spirituality. It didn't matter if a person was a certain religion or had a certain spiritual practice, or even if they were atheist or agnostic. But as long as they had a sense of peace 
an understanding of what they believed their own spirituality was and what that meant to them, then it was okay. Like every single person um, that I spoke with had some sort of spiritual belief that, that they held on to. It was always different, you know, so many different spiritual paths, but it does bring a lot of peace. And I've experienced it when people don't have that at the end of life. And it can be really one of the biggest causes of distress and, and upset at the end of life. So I always like to try to identify with my clients what their spiritual practice is and and hear them tell me so that I know that they know. And then the next one is intention. Like all the people I interviewed lived intentional lives. They set goals. They, they practiced gratitude. They, they had a positive attitude when it was appropriate. They forgave people when they were ready and when it was appropriate, you know, they accepted themselves their flaws. You know, a lot of times we spend our, our lives picking out things that we don't like about ourselves. And as you age, it's kind of yeah. weird in a way. It's, I kind of, I've never really talked about this before, but I find it weird how you kind of change physically, like you're, you're aging. So you're not like young, but you sort of start to feel more beautiful inside as you age. And so that's just one of the things that I love in working with older people is because people start accepting themselves and loving themselves and being more kind to themselves. So that's just about having a life of intention. And it's about, you know, trying new things and just being courageous and, and brave in the course of your life when you can so that you've lived a full life. And then the third one is the one that most people would think is the most obvious pillar of a meaningful life, which is love and relationships. And truly, that's a big pillar. It's who are those people that are around your bedside when you take your final breath? You know, who are the people who've walked by your side through the good times and the hard times? And it's really about sharing your heart with those people also, you know, knowing who those people are and sharing your heart along the way of your life so that you've said, I love you. And you've said what you wanted to say and that you really have cultivated these relationships over the course of your life. And then the fourth pillar, which to me is really one that is meaningful in that it makes a difference in people's legacies and how they feel at the end of their life is about charity and contribution. Like, did I make a difference? Is the world a better place because I was here? And when we talk about that, and when I talked about it with the people I interviewed, nobody built hospital wings. Nobody you know, erected monuments in, you know, honor of anything. It was just simple everyday goodness that I'm talking about. You make a difference when you say thank you. You make a difference when you hold the door for someone. You make a difference when you cook a meal and take it to someone who's sick. You know, it's it's so much about what we do every day. It's not the big, you know, explosive firework moments. It's about everyday kindness. You know, was I kind? And that's the fourth pillar. Like really, was the, is the world a better place because I was here? Yeah, I, th- I love this idea though, is as one gets older, how they just start to view themselves as a bit more beautiful or that there's more acceptance for themselves. There's something that I, I think is so kind of perverse in our culture at times that you are one of one, I am one of one. And that is, you're already special as you are. You're already something to be celebrated. And all the ways in which we can trick ourselves that we're not, 
even in my own relationship with myself, I think there's something where I was trying to perfect myself for a long time. And as even say through spiritual practices, right. you're trying to have more perfect thought, you know, better thoughts, like don't try to judge at all, you know. And then when I aired it, it that was worthy of then like punishing self-commentary. But there's something in this. It's not to give up on aspiration. It's, I don't know, there's something, something shifts, I think at some point where there's just it's a more loving relationship with yourself. And I think it ties in so much, even with the aspect of spiritual practice you're talking about there in terms of the more I, you know, for me, a spiritual practice involves meditation. So time by myself, it's a lot easier to love yourself once you actually spend, start spending time by yourself, like with yourself. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It brings up a, a story. Um, the first time, like I ever really said to myself, okay, you know, like you're beautiful, right? Because I was one of those people that just battled my demons. Like I could find fault. I will find, I would find something that I didn't like about myself all the way up until I was 47 years old. So I'm 47 years old. I had cancer, breast cancer, had a double mastectomy and I was bald and I had like red spots all over my face from chemo, flat chested, poofy tummy, just you know, as ragged and wiped out and exhausted as I've ever been. And I woke up in the middle of the night to go into the bathroom and I turned on the light and I just like saw myself like really for the first time ever. Like I just went, wow. And I really felt like my inside beauty coming out, you know, and that I, like I accepted myself when I was at a really kind of vulnerable place. And, and I, feel like that was um, a moment. I don't know if you can look back on what you were just saying and identify a moment or a period of time where you went, wait a minute, you know, I'm wonderful or I'm amazing or I'm special too, you know, where you learn to treat each other, treat yourself, how you treat other people, you know, how do, how do you get to that place? So I think those moments are really important to pay attention to. That's that's absolutely magical though isn't it like because I, I just love the fact that it's it, uh, in your example there that it came at a moment where for all maybe the things that you were pursuing or judging yourself before it almost came at your most vulnerable point and then this love came pouring forth for yourself it's true yeah yeah i i, I don't know even for myself and it's a, like you know it's a journey all the time right like you know i love the way you're describing like living a life to the fullest but acknowledging that there's ups and downs within it um but yeah i i think i think for me it was even just an an acceptance of i was pushing myself very hard and a bit like yourself like you know i could pick out my 10 flaws that i made that day if it was something i said that was incorrect uh, if something that i ate that was incorrect whatever it would have been and at some point i just had to reflect on there's someone here who's really trying hmm. and almost just an acceptance that nobody is perfect yeah. and that i'm killing myself by trying to be perfect when there's something in me already that is absolutely and most certainly worth loving absolutely i think that's why a lot of therapists use you know going back to your little boy or the little girl or the little child inside of you um, and having a conversation with that little child because that's the innocence that we we kind of lose as we grow and we stop you know singing out loud and dancing freely and we the little editor on our shoulder starts pointing out our flaws and telling us that you know we have this problem and that problem and we're not seeing ourselves for you know the beautiful people that we are when we were 
four and five and we we weren't so hard on ourselves there's there's something you you said earlier which I really wanted to go back to before I asked you about the the four pillars which was can you talk to me or elaborate a little bit more on that sensation or that experience of just being there with someone who knows that they're dying and you're just saying you've never had a conversation with them where it it, it hasn't left you more enriched and mm-hmm. it, to me it just seemed like nobody was playing any games and I think there's something amazing when we both kind of sink ourselves into a conversation where nobody's pretending anything. Right. Right. Because, because again, it's just like what we were just talking about. I think we wear a mask a lot of the times We're we're afraid of being our authentic selves and we, we hold back. And so people don't always get to know us, our true selves when we've, when we've, when we're presenting ourselves in a certain way that we think this is the image that the world wants to see versus like, this is who I am. You know, as you you get older, I think you start showing up more as who you are. You know, it takes a lot of energy to be somebody else and it's exhausting. And even, you know, trying to look a certain way and, and the, 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 just the things that we do for, you know, the social norms that we kind of follow. I just, I wish that, that people would figure it out younger than I did, you know, that, that you, you are, you have every right to be who you are and who you were created to be and not worry and not care what other people say and not to cling on to, like you said, the one or the 10 mistakes or flaws that you saw that day in yourself. You know, like one time I did a public speaking um, thing, I was 24 and I spoke and there was about a hundred people and I got such great reviews, except for one person said um, something about, oh, I should take some public speaking class or something. And I couldn't think of anything. Forget the other 99 good reviews. <laughs> that just went out the window. All I could think about literally even now, 40 years later, I'm telling you the story. Because yeah. that one thing really <laughs> messed me up. And, you know, but yeah. I now I'm, I see that wow, I really grabbed onto that. And so, you know, I think if we just focus our attention on the things that we're doing well and the things that we feel good about and the things that we like and love about ourselves, we'd be a lot happier and more content in life. Yeah, the the sentiment there of just like how, I don't know, how much we can like it, it shows kind of the absurd predicament of a human being at times that we could get 99 positive feedbacks and would remember the one bad thing. And I'm sure I could recount 20 stories like that of, of me doing something similar. So then when you're when you're there chatting or when you're just having a conversation with somebody who's dying and the mask is off, can you kind of describe just the the difference in quality of of that? And, and maybe even like where does... Does when you're completely with someone, that's does does death stop kind of hanging over the conversation? Like like even if we're discussing it, you get me. Like does it dissipate just because the the meeting is there? Hmm. Well, death is there. It doesn't leave, but maybe some of the fear leaves. You know, that's right. what that's what these conversations are usually about: is mitigating and understanding and leaning into fear, worry you know, things like that. So I think it's hard when you're dying, especially when you're within, you know, weeks to a month or two of dying. It's hard to not have that be in the room at all times. So, right. and the, and, and the real conversation 
would require that we don't push it out of the room. We need to welcome it because it's real. Yeah. So, so I would say death is in the room in terms of the, the truth, but the conversation is oftentimes reflective. So like when you're young, you're looking at your life, uh, what am I going to do? What do I have to look forward to? You know, I have all this time ahead of me. When you're dying, you're reflective and you're looking back and you're asking yourself, did I forget to say something to someone or do I, am I holding on to some regret or do I have some broken relationship that needs healing? Like what is happening for me right now that isn't complete, that's making me feel a lack of peace. And I like to dig into those areas by asking, you know, the few certain questions that I've kind of learned to get to the heart of what's happening with somebody so that they can they can tell me, but actually really tell themselves by telling me what is happening for them. Because you don't want to have this distress at the end of your life. So whatever conversation I can have with someone to help them lean into anything that doesn't feel at ease, that's where I want to go in the conversation. Yeah, I, I think... I, I in the in a conversation I had, uh, which I know you listened to as well, with the, this lady Charlotta, um, talking about dying um, and death as well. I referenced uh, having read one of your articles before, where I was really struck by the idea that someone on their deathbed could be thinking about something from their twenties or thirties that wasn't resolved, and I, I just think that there's something so like informative about that and also I think relatable in, in my own experience like I don't think we get away with anything however much we repress it or however much we decide not to address it with another human being exactly. it's still there somewhere in us and, and I love I love this sense that you have like it's almost then you're preparing someone for a peaceful death by lessening their load or giving them an outlet to express something that maybe they haven't expressed you know for to someone in a very very long time or maybe not even at all mm. yeah I look at it like the weight that we carry on our shoulders the th stuff that we carry that you build up over a lifetime some of which you haven't even thought about for decades but that do come up at the end of life how do you take that from a weight that you're carrying to um a feeling or an emotion or a situation that you're just holding instead of carrying so that you can let it go. So it's the process of, of taking anything that feels like a burden off of a dying person's back so that maybe it will be a spiritual experience or a meditation or, or a prayer or some kind of forgiveness project or something that will help them to let something go. Or maybe they need to say they're sorry to someone who's still alive and they can pick up the phone and call that person. What every situation is different. But the idea is if there's something burdening you, let's talk about it. And, you know, I think if you really did a life review, which is one of the things that we do as death doulas with our clients, um, we do them in different ways. But one I like to do it goes through every decade, you know, starting maybe with your teens and then like 20 to 30, 30 to 40. And each session will talk about that decade. Who were your friends? Who were, what was your family life like? What were you doing? What was bringing you joy? What was on your mind? What were the highs and lows? 
And we talk about every decade. And it's so fascinating because people then remember things that they hadn't thought about for years and years. So sometimes if a client wants to do a life review, that's where those things are going to pop up of, oh my gosh, I, I still feel bad that I did something to somebody and, and never apologized for it. This uh, this sounds like a really helpful tool for us all, though, right? <laughs> like, if we could be doing a decade review or even a five-yearly review um, at, at certain milestones in our life. Yeah, I think, you know, on your birthday, you know, every month, it's really nice to to pause and ask yourself, you know, is there somebody I need to call? Is there somebody I need to say thank you to? Is there somebody I need to forgive? Is there someone who I love who doesn't know I love them? You know, asking yourself those questions on a regular basis kind of helps you to have that clean slate over and over as you go through life. So I try to check in with myself and just make sure I'm not holding on so that, you know, if I were to lose a friend like I did recently, um, I would feel, I would feel at least a sense of peace that, that she knew how I felt about her. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, I, I think something that is as an, as unavoidable and as unexpected as death can be sometimes I, I find that so, um, kind of comforting that we can still find peace, some degree of peace within the, the pain or the tragedy of a situation Yeah, based on how we chose to show up to that relationship when it was, when it was still present in our lives. Absolutely. I mean, it's never too late. That's what I always tell my clients. It's never too late because you can find a way to heal even without the person present. And, you know, I always say that when I come to someone's home as a death doula, you know, we're also called end of life doulas. And a lot of people get anxious around the word death. So I normally call myself an end of life doula when I'm going to a client's home and the reason I like that better is because really death is just that one day. Death is one day. Yeah. Every day leading up to it, you're still alive. Every day leading up until that day, you are going to be making choices and you have an opportunity to say what you need to say or to be present or hold somebody's hand. And so I, I really think that we we miss the boat when we start discarding people as, you know, not being able to communicate anymore or just kind of like, oh, they're, they're dying, but they're still alive and they're still living. And I always want to remember that we don't know what's still inside that person and what needs to be said until they die. You know, it's, it's amazing that I think that's an amazing observation because, um, I've, I've had, I've known people in, in my life that I've been close to that have passed but they've been, they've had terminal diseases or conditions where, you know, you never knew how long they'd be there for. And then the amount of people that would have passed suddenly before they ever pass. And, and, and that's a real, almost like a bit of a head warp to get my head around at times thinking like, I'm viewing this person as dying all this time. But you're right, death is one moment uh, that comes at the, at the very end. There's still there's still so much life even for somebody who is who would label as as dying in, in in certain circumstances anyway absolutely i always think that i'm going to see a dying person but i could die before them 
I think that yeah. all the time. You know, just one of the, or a couple of the things that you touched on there in terms of just the process that you take, one of your, the, the people that you're helping through is almost the, the, the place of forgiveness. I'm just intrigued because I think this is something that we struggle with a lot as people. I I would hope I'm getting a little bit better at it, but I, man, I can carry a grudge <laughs> like the best of them as well still, even when I'm conscious that I'm holding a grudge and it's it's causing me pain. Because uh, I, I do love the idea that uh, I'm forgiveness is almost more for me than it is for you because I'm going to be, I'm going to relieve myself of something. Like it, it's, there's usually a lot of kind of toxic energy caught up in that. Can you kind of give an, an idea as to, as to what you might how you might approach that with somebody to help them let go of something something that they're holding on to sure yeah you know you're you said it really beautifully just that whole um idea that unforgiveness is more harmful to you you know you're you're still upset with somebody who's off living on the planet not even knowing that you're upset with them probably and you're all tangled up inside so you're the one who's suffering when you don't forgive but I do believe that forgiveness needs to happen when you're ready and when it's appropriate. I don't think forced forgiveness is necessary or right because um, some people do suffer trauma and at the hands of other people and it feels unforgivable. And I respect that when I have a client who has no interest in forgiving someone, I totally support that. And then I companion them through that and maybe do an exercise of processing their own hurt and their own anger, or maybe we'll talk through their emotions, you know, so that they can maybe let go of some emotions. And a lot of times, like I mentioned earlier, if there's an opportunity to call somebody, we do a lot of healing, you know, a lot of the broken relationships, a lot of the dynamics that require forgiveness are within families more than anything, I would say. And so a lot of times people are still available to have those conversations. Sometimes as a client that I have right now, the the person that she wants to have the conversation with doesn't want to have that conversation. So she's also stuck because the other person's not willing to communicate about it. So, so she's going to have to process this herself. So we might write a letter to her person that she's had this conflict with so that she can get it off her chest. Or we might do, you know, a a ritual of a, a meditation with a candle that she blows out after and just does everything she can to let go of it. But we'll do a forgiveness meditation or, you know, we'll try to find a way of letting go, whether it's, you know, hitting a pillow or, you know, just saying a mantra, you know, I usually get to know my clients pretty well. So I know how their spiritual practice might intertwine with their need to forgive, not necessarily to forgive for the other person, but to give forgive for themselves. So I'm always looking for projects. And I think writing letters that you either deliver or don't deliver is really a wonderful thing to do. A lot of clients like to do it anyway, just because they like to leave something behind. So if I'm doing what would be called a legacy project, a lot of times we're writing letters and sometimes we'll take a person that has been a conflicting, conflicted relationship in their life and we'll write them a letter. And sometimes people will 
want to burn it. And sometimes people will ask me to deliver it after they die and I do whatever they choose. I, I love this. Like even um, for myself personally, even the act of journaling sometimes is just is super helpful. But um, I've also taken part in ceremonies before where, we, where I write something down and then burn it and kind of symbolizes the, the letting go of it. I, I think I, I, those, a lot of these things are, are very kind of, I don't know, they release a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and I love the, the element as well of, of addressing it from the point of view that, you know, sometimes people may not even have the person around anymore that they need to, they'd like to forgive or get forgiveness from. So I think it's it's so nice to have an, a, a perspective where somebody else may or may not be need to be involved in it as well. Yeah, I think so. that's a good um, meditation is good for that, because if you can do a guided meditation where you bring the person that they need to forgive into the meditation, they can actually have an experience that's really fulfilling. Yeah, this uh, this sense though of like it seems then if I'm understanding that if I'm if I'm understanding the situation at the end of the life and the relationship that you go through with these people that you get to know very well, it seems to me like we don't kind of get away with anything in life. That it's not like everything come homes to roost, but everything like I, I think maybe it feels like you've got you're not wearing a mask anymore, so all this stuff is almost a bit laid bare. Mm, yeah. So I think that's true of my clients because they sought me out because they wanted to talk and they wanted to process these emotions and they wanted to talk about their fears and their worries and regret and shame and guilt. And, you know, they call me because they're willing to go to those hard places, but not everyone is. So there are people who will die with secrets and they will, they will die without, you know, sharing their heart. But I will say that when I'm sitting with a person, maybe through hospice who hadn't called me directly to do death doula work, but who maybe I'm just offering respite for the family to take a break or something. Um, there's still truth in everybody's eyes. You know, right. there's there, it's still very, very real and present. And it's just whether you're the type of a person who wants to show up and bring your whole self to the end of life experience, or if you're holding yourself back and still not willing to have those conversations. And, and there are people like that. And there are people who are in denial that they're going to die and they might stay in denial until they die. And that's okay too. So as a yeah. doula, my job is to meet the person wherever they are. And so if they're in denial, that's okay. That's a crutch. And that's what's keeping them going. That's how they're coping is through denial. So I never want to take that away from someone. But even then, people are aware of their situation. They just choose not to accept it. Oh, there's, a, there's something very kind of deep about that sense that there's truth in their eyes. Yeah. But like, you, you know, like it's, uh, if you're, I, I'm sure obviously just even from this conversation and what I've checked out about your work before, there's, you'll have a high sense of um, like awareness and because of your experience in the moment as well, you're probably not missing very much. And mm. you know, you know what a certain emotion looks like, even when it's, it's almost masked by the, mm. like, or, you know, I think, I think it's people we kind of pick up on energies anyway, or, sorry, not even just being able to pick out a specific emotion. I don't mean it like that, but just like you, we get a sense of a situation, even if it's not being named or addressed. 
Yeah, I'm paying attention. But one thing that just struck me when you were saying that is, you know how when you're talking to someone and you look them in the eye, there's that, and they look you in the eye, and there's a connection when you really look somebody in the eye? That is what it feels like. I mean, because we kind of go through life and we're even talking one-on-one, but we don't always make that eye contact that goes really, really deep, like I can see your soul, you know? Yeah. And when I'm sitting at the bedside with someone and there's nothing else, there's not anywhere to be, there's no, I don't need to be speeding to yoga right now. I don't need to be doing anything because I'm 100% there with this person and they're not going anywhere either. They're just, you know, kind of starting to go inward as they start the dying process. So if I'm there 100%, then I'm going to have a really meaningful time with that person, guaranteed. I, I love how in conversations that I'm having um, around even death with uh, both through this podcast, but also with people that are involved in this profession, just to, that I've, I've, I've met uh, through life as well. I just love how there's there's so many lessons in these experiences that hold up absolutely as truthful and useful just in our in our day to day. Like it, in, in a weird way, it seems like a continuation of the rules, except not the rules, but maybe good practice or helpful practice and living, you know, like keeping a clean slate, looking people in the eye, connecting deeply. You know, it's obviously so much more intensified when we we maybe know the end is near. But these are things that if we're we're showing up to our own life with that, there's they can be so they can be such enriching experiences as well. Yeah, I see them as tools, like the four pillars are tools for living that I happen to learn from the dying, you know? And, you know, I've written a bit about, you know, the lessons in life I've learned from the dying, like nobody's clinging on to hundred dollar bills when they die, you know, and, and love is the thing that's left in the room after someone takes their final breath. And there's a lot of lessons, but the four pillars are what cause me to pause and reflect and be thoughtful before I make choices in my life. Because if you can live your life through the lens of death, knowing that you're going to die, accepting that you're going to die, and making choices aligned with how you would want to feel when your life is over, when you reflect back, you're going to make healthy choices. And so I think that that there's a lot of tools that come our way from the awareness and the, and the lessons that we learn being with the dying and spending time with people with terminal diagnoses and who are facing death. And just the in in all your in all the work that you've done and just even your just your own observations of society and even you know how we even talked about how sometimes we perceive aging and there's this there's almost like a, it seems like a contradiction in the sense that we end up finding ourselves more beautiful even though in in terms of how society almost frames aging like i have many gray hairs i'm supposed to get rid of them apparently um, right. do, do, do you know what i mean like when when you kind of look at at just the general kind of conversation around death do you ever look at it from the point of view like how can we i know you're obviously the work that you do the things you write about the book uh the books that you're doing the courses that you're you're involved with and the the hospice work and the de- uh, the end of life doula work like is that is that part of your mission at the moment too permeate the consciousness a little bit more and to bring a little bit more I don't know not like like both reality love like a little less fear into this process Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, I haven't thought of it like as a mission or anything like that, but I think that with my writing, um, I I would love people to embrace, embrace death earlier on and not fear it so much and understand it so that, you know, we can have a kinder, more gentle world. Um, and through that, um, I think that's the idea of like to die in peace, you need to live in peace, you know, to die in harmony with all beings, you need to live in harmony with all beings to die with no regret, live with no regret, you know, and I could go on and on. And so in those ways, um, we, we learn that, that every day matters and we have choices to make all the time in terms of how we're going to live our life. When it comes to the courses that I teach at the university of Vermont, for me, that is about bringing people into the world who are death doulas, who are going to be doing this work. And I've found, and I think it's important for everybody, but I truly think it's important for people who are going to be death doulas that you need to do your own work first. You need to understand your shadows. You need to understand what might trigger you. You might, you need to know, you know, what, what your fears are around death and dying so that when you knock on someone's door, you are clear and present and you are, you are there for that person and you leave your own ego, you leave your own agenda, your own needs, your own fears, you leave all that at the door. So in order to really be effective in this work, you need to be able to do your own work and understand also your own journey with grief and loss and death and dying so that you don't mix your work with your client's work. Yeah, which is, uh, once again, these are these are lovely lessons even for just having healthy sometimes having healthy relationships with people and just not putting projecting your stuff onto other people too and and to be able to to hold your own counsel before before kind of putting it at somebody else's door as well and you mentioned something right at the start in terms of when even your grandfather but you've said you felt it um in other situations too like you feel someone leaving the room or you feel someone leaving this life could you describe what that feels like? And maybe not even more so even in more recent years, not trying to bring you all the way back to, to your grandfather as such, but just is there like, how would you, I'm, I'm so curious to, to hmm. not to look, uh, unfortunately, if it's, if it's my, based on what I do uh, for my career, it's not going to, I'm not going to be exposed to this a lot and will be with a loved one, I'm sure. But just what is that, that thing that you're feeling in that moment? Hmm. It's so amazing. It makes me think of two things. One is, um, this isn't what you asked me, but sometimes before someone dies, they have a nearing death experience where they see somebody from their past and, you know, you see somebody's face light up or somebody reach out to hug somebody. Or I had recently a client call out somebody's name And then I asked the family later, you know, who is this person? It's happened more than once, actually. Um, And then you find out, oh, that was a person from their past, you know. So I love the the feeling, the peace that comes with knowing that there's someone there to, you know, carry everyone across the threshold when they die. I mean, there's just such peace in that for me. And so that's one of the greatest things that I ever witness 
in my work is when someone has an experience, especially if they're not so close to death and they can tell me about it afterwards. It's to me, one of the most mysterious and beautiful things ever, ever. So I'm, that's a side note. But so before you, I love this side. Okay. Can I just ask? <laughs> sure. So, so they, they have an experience pre death where they're almost so close to death that something, they have an experience where they truly feel that they're being greeted and you can see it either in their, their actions or a call, uh, that they feel like they're, they're being greeted and brought somewhere through a, through somebody important in their life. Absolutely. And people will often say, oh, it was so warm and there was a bright light or, you know, there was a parade of people to greet me. Um, you know, people that I haven't thought about for 40 years were there. You know, my parents were there. I mean, you, you hear so many stories. And to me, it's one of the most comforting parts about dying in my work is to see how many people have these experiences I think I can explain it a little bit about when people die, you know, or are dying, their word, world starts closing in. Like, you know, when you're living, you're out traveling, your world, world is huge. And then it starts shrinking and you might not, you know, leave your town anymore. And then you might not leave your house anymore. And then you might not leave your bedroom anymore. And then you might not leave your bed anymore. And you're, you're shrinking. It's, your world is shrinking. But the beautiful part about it is you're going inward. And so your right. inward world is full. And that's why I said earlier on that the spiritual practice that you, that you hold is so important at the end, because that's when I see it manifesting is when people really start going more and more inward and they're not really concerned about what's going on in the world out around them anymore. So that's often when the, these experiences happen, when people are, you know, on the threshold of death and they're maybe going in and out of consciousness they'll have one of these experiences and share it with us. And it's pretty amazing and profound. Well, that must be a, a stunning thing to, to share with somebody or, or, or to be around. Um, just then in terms then of from your experience and because uh, I, I jumped on your, your side point. Uh, yeah, you want <laughs> just me to in finish? Terms of, of what, yeah, of what you're feeling then in that moment or what you're kind of sensing. So when, if they're having a nearing death experience, I'm, I'm, I've got my journal and my pen, and I'm going to write down every word they say if they speak out loud exactly, because I don't want to miss a thing. So the one I right. talk to them about it, or if I tell a family member, a lot of times it brings great comfort to the family to know that this experience happened. But I stay out of the way. I don't say, who are you talking to? Or, oh, there's nobody there. I just honor the the unseen by me visitors in the room with my client and just allow the experience to unfold. But I do see the expressions on their face and I see their hands and I see their body motion and, and I see like kind of joy, which is really yeah. beautiful. But to answer the other part of your question is like when somebody dies um, and I, I said earlier um, that I feel like I could see my grandfather leave. And I feel maybe this sounds weird to some people who are listening, but for me, I feel like I, I feel somebody's soul leave their body. I and mean, that's the simplest way I can describe it. Um, my 
husband and I were going to see his father a couple years ago who was dying. And they, the, they said, we get here as soon as you can. We were about an hour and a half away. We were in the car and we got a call that he had died. And I said, um, do you want to, do you want to go see him? And he's like, well, yeah, I want to see him. And I said, okay. And he said, well, what's it going to be like? And I said, well, you'll see his body, but he won't be there. And my husband thought that was strange at first, but then afterwards he said, I totally get what you meant because his body was there, but he wasn't, he was gone. And, um, I've had experiences before where I've actually, I've felt like somebody lifted and, and left the room. And I've even had experiences where I've been a doula for someone who I've woken up in the middle of the night feeling like, oh, that person just died. And it's been true. So I feel like when we get really super connected with somebody, oftentimes we do get signals and we do have these feelings. But but when you're present in the room with someone, oftentimes it does feel like you can you can feel them leaving. Do you know, there's a, I've talked to a couple of people um, on these podcasts so far, one person referencing a Jungian analyst who was talking about how blunt we've come to our sense of feeling and our sense of uh, emotional perception. And then somebody else who does this social dreaming uh, connection thing where it's almost like we're speaking through a, the language before words formulates. Mm. And I, I, don't, I don't know, just even from what you've just said there as well, it just feels to me that these perceptions, if you train yourself or not, even if you just let go of maybe some of the labels or the lenses through which you look at the world, these feelings are still there to be, to be had. Diane, I know, just I know we're coming up to the end here. Do you have time for one more question? Sure. Just look, based on on everything we've just talked about, like, you know, even the the curiosity that you had at the start of life is, you know, what happens when we die? Um, why are we here? These kind of questions and then kind of coming to peace with the idea that, OK, maybe I won't get the the absolute answers to those. Then kind of how do I how do I focus on being here now? How do I show up and and mm-hmm. experience a full life, almost a full enough life to the point that I'll have peace when when it is my time to to pass? Then obviously through the the four pillars that you've you know through your study, through your work, through your interviewing people, through whether it's interviewing people on planes, between the <laughs> spiritual practice, intention, having gratitude, and. Um, you know, forgiving people, um, but then obviously just the core element of just love and relationships. You know, you even said the lessons from the dying when someone leaves, it's not a hundred dollar bills they're holding on to. Love is the only thing that's left in the room. And then this sense as well of just contributing to other people's lives. Like, and it doesn't have to be this sense where you're going to leave a huge legacy or that someone's going to tell you how fantastic you are. It's just so much of what you're saying seems to be just how you show up to each day, almost engaging with people cleaning the slate you know accepting ourselves as we are we're not perfect we'll air we'll have up and down days but just that repeated process um, and the importance of that spiritual practice as well and uh, just for you personally and uh, the question of of what is a good life for you um, mm. i know you've touched on so many elements there but what comes up for you wow you just gave a really amazing synopsis right there that was great <laughs> um you know Again, I think I go back to the lens of aging and where I am right now. So a good life for me is to be able to answer yes to the questions, did I love, do the people I love know that I love them, 
Did I say thank you? Did I say I'm sorry? And is the world a better place because I was here? Those questions, if I can say yes to those questions, that would be a good life for me. Jeez, that's uh, that's very succinct, very clear, and, and very powerful, I think. And mm. uh, my evening here in Berlin has definitely been better because you've been here. <laughs> um, so, Well, my morning in California is better because I've been with you. So thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Mm. Uh, look, Diane, thank you so much for joining me here on the What is a Good Life podcast. Uh, I know you said it took you until the age of 47 to realize what a beautiful person you are, but I'm, it's blindingly clear to me that that's the case. So look, I'm I'm very grateful for the time you gave me here today and, and hopefully our paths can cross again in the future. Thank you. So nice to meet you.